Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. What a privilege we have to gather together as a family today, first day of 2017. Why don't you go ahead and find Isaiah chapter 40 in your Bibles, please. Now, we've had the privilege over the last several weeks of seeing both in the book of Acts as well as in Luke how God orchestrates his plan, how he comforts his people, how he rescues his people. Last week on Christmas, we saw how God displays his power. But today we get to see how God leads his people. And if you just took a quick look at the headlines yesterday, just the last day of the year of 2016, you might be tempted to think, you know, Satan's been having a field day and we're in trouble. Here's a sampling Cruel and merciless New Year's attack at Istanbul nightclub kills 35, wounds 40. 38 dead, 155 wounded in twin bomb blast near stadium. Car bomb in Turkey kills two, injures 33. Russian ambassador to Turkey shot. Two dead in concert shooting in Connecticut. And it just goes on. This is just a sampling of the headlines from yesterday. And it really would be easy for us to say, you know, I think we're in a lot of trouble, and I think Satan's just having a field day, and what's going to happen? And we need assurance today. This is the first day of the year. If you're a believer in Jesus, you need to know something. You need to know that God is in control, that God has everything in hand, that nothing escapes his notice, and that he is here with us, and that he wants to speak to us through his word today. And I would just say this, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian today, you need to know that God leads his people. You need to know that if you're a believer, that you can have 100% assurance that God is going to lead you as you worship him and follow him and serve him, which, by the way, will be your greatest joy in life. But he is going to lead you and guide you and protect you and provide for you, and he's going to conform you to the image of Christ, because if you're a Christian, that is what he's doing in your life, is conforming you to the image of Christ. If you're not a believer today, I hope you hear the gospel, and I hope you really hear it, and I hope you believe it. But I want you to stand with me right now, and I'm going to read 11 verses in Isaiah chapter 40. <clears throat> Next week, we're going to be back in the book of Acts. But today, I want to take a pause and really look at, on the first day of the year, some words that we need, some words that God's people back then needed, and words we need today. Isaiah 40, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your presence here with us today. We thank you that you are intimately acquainted with everything about us. You know everything and, and we thank you that you're here and we thank you that you want to use your word by your spirit to change us. So we ask, Lord, that you would have your way with us today and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I want you to see today that God leads his people. And that God leads his people to hope so that they would follow him. That they would know he is 100% trustworthy and that he keeps all his promises. And so we're here in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah was written by Isaiah. We see that in the first verse of chapter 1. Isaiah's ministry stretched from King Uzziah's death in 740 B.C. to the days of the wicked king Manasseh in around 686. Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of several kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in Judah. And Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. In fact, the theme of the book really is God is the only one who saves. That point is made over and over again in Isaiah. And Isaiah portrays something over and over again, really two things throughout the whole book. The first thing is God's judgment on sin, and the second thing is God's restoring or saving of his people. And Isaiah is describing something for us, really, throughout the first 39 chapters that we really don't need anyone to describe for us because we know all about it, because we know what our hearts are like. Isaiah describes mankind's failure in sin. And we know all about our failure in sin, don't we? We can just talk all about it because we know how much we fail in sin. And and Isaiah talks about God's punishment on sin and and the the consequences of sin. And the high point of Isaiah is, is really chapter 53 where Christ's death to pay for sin is prophesied. And it goes on, because Isaiah then speaks of future blessing for the people of God, all the way to God's creation of a new heaven and a new earth, which is recorded in Isaiah 65 and 66. So if you take the whole book of Isaiah, you could say there's two big parts, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. And we're landing here in the first few verses of chapter 40 today. The way you could put it is this. Chapters 1 through 39 focus on God's judgment on sin. And while there are glimpses of his glory and glimpses of what he is going to do, it's primarily focused on on the judgment of God on sin. And then you shift over to chapters 40 to 66. And what you find is the clouds part. And you see this magnificent picture of 
of the glory of God's kingdom. And while there are still traces and you know, recording of the sin of God's people, the focus of, of the last you know, 27 chapters in Isaiah are all about the glory of God in saving his people. So that's where we're at today at the beginning of that big section. Isaiah 40 all the way to 66 is known as the New Testament section of Isaiah. There are 27 chapters like the 27, uh, excuse me, 27 chapters there like the 27 books in the New Testament. And it begins with John the Baptist's ministry. In fact, verses 3 and 4 where it talks about the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for God. That's prefiguring John the Baptist's ministry. And there is an emphasis on Christ and salvation. Again, the heart is chapter 53, the greatest Old Testament prediction of Christ's death on the cross. And so 1 through 39, God's judgment on sin. 40 to 66, God's comfort and salvation. And, and we're here at the start of the comfort and salvation. We know all about our sin. We, we need to hear today about God's comfort and salvation. Isaiah wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to encourage a remnant of Jews that were going to be delivered from the Babylonians after 70 years of captivity. And this is awesome. By the Spirit of God, Isaiah wrote this, this prophecy over 150 years before the remnant would need its encouragement and comfort. And what would happen is, as they would see what God had Isaiah write down, they would look back. They would look back on their sin, they would look back on their failure, and they would see this and they would be dis disheartened, they would be discouraged, they would, they would be downcast, they would feel condemned, and God would want them to see this and, and have encouragement to know that God is gonna lead them to hope, that, that God is gonna lead his people to hope. That's what I want you to see today, that God leads his people to hope so that we would follow him. Isaiah 40 shows the greatness of God and the, the graciousness of God's plan. And what I want you to see with me today are, are three ways that God leads his people. These are not the only ways God leads his people. These are the three ways we see him leading his people in this passage today, and we're gonna have our hands full just with these. So I want you to first look at verses one through five, and if you look at your Bibles and it, most likely your Bible is going to have three sections uh, already highlighted in terms of what I read. So what you'll notice is verses 1 through 5 is a section, verses 6 through 8 is a section, and verses 9 through 11 is a section, and those are the three sections we're going to look at today. But I want to call your attention to the first section, verses 1 through 5, and this idea. God leads his people by deciding what will happen. By deciding what will happen, he decrees what will come to pass. It shows his sovereignty, and he speaks first of the comfort that he is going to bring about for his people. And he is speaking by way of decree. Verse 1, he says, comfort, comfort, two times comfort, multiplied comfort for his people. Says your God, it is personal. You need to take this personally today, if you're a believer, you need to take this personally. Comfort my people, says your God. Verse two, he says, um, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That literally means speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to their hearts. 
Speak to their hearts and tell them something. Tell them something they need to hear. Now, this is what we need to hear today, too. We need to hear this, that the warfare is over, that the iniquity is pardoned, and that they've received from the Lord's hand double for their sins. God is giving assurance of pardon here, assurance of forgiveness for his people because he loved them, because he had disciplined them but was not going to forsake them. And so he says, speak tenderly to the people. Speak to their heart that the warfare is over. The warfare literally means the severe trials that they had been through. And they had been through some severe ones. Inflicted, they were going to be going through some severe ones inflicted by their enemies because of their sin. But you're going through severe trials. Some of you are going through very severe physical trials. Some of you are going through very severe uh, you know, personal, emotional trials or spiritual trials, and, and you need to know if you're a believer that God has ended that warfare in the sense that he is going to deliver you through it. He's going to take you through it. He might not deliver you and airlift you out of it, but he's going to see you through it. And he says that double has, is what they've received, and this doesn't mean, by the way, that you know, they were so bad they had to get you know, double punishment, Okay? The idea is that God is merciful in his, in his dealings, in his chastening and disciplining his children, and they had been chastened and disciplined corresponding to what they had done. Now again, none of us need to know, uh, need anyone to tell us about our sin because we, we know our sin full well. And even just what we're aware of is enough to weigh us down and cause us to despair. If you read in the New Testament, what you'll notice, especially in 1 John, written to believers, about, about what God does with our sin and how he forgives us, but also that we should not take that forgiveness lightly, that grace lightly, and just do whatever we want, but that we should want to please God. And the idea is that we shouldn't sin, but we know we do, and so when we sin, God is waiting to pardon us, to forgive us. 1 John 2, 1 tells us, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I can't be my own advocate. I can't plead my own case. You can't plead it for me. I can't plead it for you. Our only advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God and perfect, and so he's the only one who could be our advocate. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice is crying. Prepare the Lord's way in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, you, the barren desert needs a highway. And it needs a highway for who? For God. For God. And in verse 4, God says what he's going to do in that desert that has a highway for God. Every valley is going to be, he's decreeing this, he's declaring it, says it's going to happen. It's going to be lifted up. The valleys will be lifted up. Uh, every mountain and hill will be made low. Uneven ground will become level. Now, we all like a, a smooth road, right? Just yesterday, I was riding my bike while one of my kids was running and doing my fatherly duty and enjoying it, getting my exercise, and we were in this one part of town where all the roads had been churned up and kind of scraped bare of, the, of the, uh, the pavement, and it was kind of rough going, and it was, it was bumpy and what have you, and we're looking forward to the smooth road that they put put in there and and god is saying you know what there is going to be a smooth road for his people and he's speaking far far future of the glory of god and of his kingdom and he says and all flesh will see it together 
And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This, is, this has been decreed to come to pass. And the image of the highway is a very common in Isaiah. You'll probably notice this if you read through Isaiah. The Jews had a rough road ahead of them. Uh, they were going to, after their captivity, they're going to return to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild uh, the temple. And God is saying, I'm going to go before you and prepare the way. I'm going to go ahead of you and open up the way. And we need that kind of encouragement. We need to know that the stuff that we're going through, God is actually going to be preparing the way before us, and we're not going into uncharted territory. This idea of a highway here pictures an ambassador repairing roads and removing any obstacles to the people so they can just go on the road. The idea, the big idea is preparing the way for a coming king. Here, it's speaking of preparing the way for Jesus to appear. And now we're sitting here in 2017 rem rem uh, remembering that he's already appeared in the fullness of the time. And now we are waiting for him to return. The ultimate fulfillment of, of this prophecy when it was first spoken was, was the ministry of John the Baptist preaching repentance, by the way prepping the way for Jesus. And just think about repentance with me for a moment. It is a mind-bending activity. Where, when else in life do you make progress by going backward? You are coming back to God, and the way back is not always easy, but you have the assurance as a believer that God is with you, if you're a believer. Here is Israel in a desert wilderness, and Jesus comes. Uh, when Jesus came, Israel had been in a desert wilderness. But when Christ came, God's glory came. John 1.14 tells us that we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God is not just giving them hope here. He's saying to them, you're going to have forgiveness. And, and we know where that forgiveness came from here. The forgiveness came because it was purchased at the cross by Jesus Christ paying the penalty for sin. And what he's talking about here is forgiveness. In fact, I, I knew a lot of kids were going to be in here. I always love it when kids are in. And uh, I just want to, uh, want to come up with something memorable for both the kids and me, people who need memorable stuff. Okay, I need memorable stuff to help me remember things. So the first point, if you think about, well, the God decides what's going to happen what is the big deal that he's going to decide that's going to happen? What's, what's the biggest thing that he says is going to happen? And it's this, free forgiveness. Free forgiveness in Christ. In fact, some of you are sometimes saying, well, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I, I, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure if God isn't going to maybe, you know, kick me out for bad behavior sometime. Maybe he's not as pleased with me as has. I really want him to be, and, and we kind of you know, think weird thoughts sometimes, do we not? And I want you to know, if you're a Christian, you are saved to the uttermost. You are, if you're a Christian, you are fully saved. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that. That Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So if you've come to Christ by faith, in his finished work on the cross, and you say, I want to be saved from my sins by Jesus, he's the only savior, then you are being saved to the uttermost. 
because he always lives to make intercession for you. He's always praying for you. He's that advocate. And if you're a Christian, here's what it means. Jesus is not going to bring about part of your salvation and leave the rest up to you. That whatever is needed for your total salvation, Jesus does. That Jesus brings about your entire salvation from first to last, from beginning to end, from regeneration to glorification. I want to quote John Owen here, and some of you are going to say, you like John Owen a lot, don't you? Yes, he was a Puritan writer, and I really like his writings. And I'm going to quote from his book, The Glory of Christ. And you're going to say, you really like that book, The Glory of Christ, don't you? Yes is the answer. Here's what he says. When we go to someone for help, two questions arise. The first is, is the person to whom we are going for help willing to help us? And secondly, is he able to help us? We need to know that Christ is both willing and able to help us and to meet all our needs. He who emptied and humbled himself, I'm still quoting John Owen here, came down from the infinite height of glory to take our finite nature into union with his infinite nature. Will he not meet all our needs and answer, according to his infinite wisdom, all our prayers for help? Will he not do all that is necessary for us to be eternally saved? The answer to those questions is a resounding yes. He is going to do that. And he does that, he leads his people by deciding what is going to happen, decreeing it before it comes to pass. So if you are in Christ today, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And God said, I'm going to forgive that person freely. Free forgiveness in Christ. That's the first thing we see here. God decides what will happen, and he gives free forgiveness in Christ. Let's move on to the second thing. The second thing, verses 6 through 8, another way God leads his people. God leads his people by directing them to his word, the word of God, that he leads his people by directing us to his word, and here we, we really have God's authority, right? He's, his word is authoritative, and verse 6 tells us that a voice says, cry, and the answer comes back, what shall I cry? Like, shout something out. What should I shout out? And here's what was supposed to be shouted out. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. Verse 7, the grass withers. That means it's green at one point, and then it gets brown. And if you're in California, and your grass is brown, you're doing your part. Right? The grass withers... And the flower fades. I mean, the only kind of flowers that don't fade are those, the silk ones, right? And even those probably fade at some point. But flowers and grass, they, they basically live out their usefulness and then they're burned. All right? The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, and surely the people are grass. Now, Christians know that we're sheep, but we're grass too. Now, sheep eat grass. But we're not cannibals. <laughs> I just want you to know that, okay? Um, the grass withers, verse 8. The flower fades. 
And here's the big point. The word of our God stands forever. It doesn't change. It's an immovable rock. It's based on God's faithfulness. God's word is true. God promised that his word would last forever. Now you think about what was going to happen with the Israelites. Assyria will be gone Babylon would be gone by the time that they were getting the comfort from this prophecy. Like grass and flowers, the nations and their rulers had fulfilled their purposes and are fading away. But the word of God abides forever. Same is true in our time. Rulers and nations will will fulfill their purposes under God and then fade away, but the word of God lasts forever. We've got to cement that, uh, secure that strongly in our hearts that we would not waver from that and start to think that God's word might change. It doesn't change. This is good for us. And here is, the original hearers were gonna be beginning a long journey home from captivity at one point, and they were gonna be depending on God's promises. So just like as God decides what will happen and he decrees full Forgiveness, free forgiveness for Christians. Here's, here's the, um, the memorable part for me at least, that God directs us to his word where we find his permanent promises. Permanent promises. And we make a promise and we kind of say, well, I didn't really mean it. You know, we say something that we will do something and we say, well, you know what, I, but, but you acted in a certain way so you're not gonna get what I told you you're gonna get. Right? That's not what God does. God makes the promise and he keeps it. Because it's based on his faithfulness, not ours. Permanent promises. Psalm 119, verse 105, I love it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've been riding my bike a lot with my kids and and I've been, uh, sometimes it's at nighttime, it's getting dark really early, right? And so I got this light on the front of my bike. It's small, it's very small, it's battery operated. It's just a beam. But in the dark, it works. It shows the path. Is there a tree that's going to snag me? Is there a pole that's going to jump out and get me? What's going to happen? Well, I see it with the light, and I move away. The light is good. The word is the lamp to your feet, your lantern, basically, and it's the light to your path. It it leads the way. And by the way, it doesn't lie to you. It doesn't lie to you. God's word is 100% trustworthy because God is 100% trustworthy. And he will always lead you in the right way, and he will never lead you astray. This is what we mean when we acknowledge that God's word is inspired. It's from God. It is inerrant. It is without error. And it is infallible. It is always true. It will never lead you astray. And God is leading his people to his word where they cling to his permanent promises. Love Psalm 23, one of the first uh, pa- passages of Scripture that I memorized when I was a, a new believer. And, and it starts this way The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters, He restores my soul, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And the way God leads believers beside still waters and in the path of righteousness is by leading them to his word where they they can cling to his permanent 
promises. This is what God does. He, he directs his people to his word, to scripture, to the word of God, to focus on his permanent promises. Let's move to the third thing. Not, not only does God decide what will happen and direct us to his word, but verses 9 through 11 shows us that God leads his people to depend on his wisdom to do what is right. Our minds play tricks on us, and we don't always know the right thing to do, and sometimes we think we're doing the right thing, but we're really doing the wrong thing, and people let us know. But God leads his people to depend on his wisdom to do what is right through, here's the memorable part, ongoing obedience. You get free forgiveness in Christ. You're in the permanent promises category where you're like, I'm clinging to that. And, and by the Spirit of God, you are enabled to walk in ongoing obedience. By the way, one of my kids gave me the ongoing obedience part. I just want you to know that. I got to give credit where it's due. Won't tell you who, so I don't want to embarrass anybody. Verse 9 tells us, get up on a high mountain. So go mountain climbing. O Zion, people of God, herald of good news. So they're they're the, the heralders of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. Like, yell it out, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. So you're the bringer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. How many times does God say to his people, do not fear? And here's what you're supposed to say. Here is what you are supposed to climb up on a mountain and say. Behold your God. Behold your God. So here's what's happening. The nation is coming out of the valley and is going to climb up on a mountain to declare, behold your God. They're declaring God's victory over their enemies. That's what they're going to do. The good news back then was Babylon's defeat and the released captives. The good news today is the defeat of sin and Satan by the shed blood of Christ at the cross and salvation, rescue, deliverance for all who believe in Christ. That's something to shout about. When you're a brand new believer and you get saved, you're like, I want to tell everyone about Jesus. And as you grow in the word and as you are in Christian community, you keep on wanting to tell people about Jesus. It's the greatness of God. Verse 10 Behold, the Lord comes with might. Now we're in the strength category. And his arm rules for him. Our arms are falling apart. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. God is coming to reign. He is preparing reward for his people, and he's doing it with his arm. In Hebrew, it's the forearm. The strong part, the activity of power of God, it's military force, it's that he is the helper of his people, that he is the the companion for his people. He's, He's with his people, strong. And then you come to the beautiful words of verse 11. Look at verse 11. Look at me at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, carry them close, and he will gently lead those who are with young, literally those who are vulnerable. God's saying, I'm going to do this for my people. I love my people. And here you have God's arm, which is a mighty arm in winning the battle, 
but also a loving arm to carry his weary lambs. That you might feel like a weary lamb today. That you're saying, I'm on January 1, and I'm not sure if I can make it. For the people of God in those days, they would be shouting, we're coming home. We're coming home. This is the good news to the devastated cities of Judah. God is going to shepherd his people, literally graze them, feed them, pasture them, tend them. He's going to tenderly feed and lead his people. He's going to gather them. He's literally going to collect them and hold them with his hands and and gather them together and not let them go. You're safe in Christ. He's going to carry them, literally take them and lift them up and, and, and take them. That word also can mean pardon and forgive. And, and he's going to lead them. Where's he leading them? Leading them to a watering place, a place of food, a place of rest, where he will provide for and sustain and supply. And that really, in a microcosm, is a picture of your life in Christ, that he has given you free forgiveness in Christ, that you have his permanent promises that you're clinging to, and that now, by his spirit, through his word, you can walk in ongoing obedience. Sure, you know, sometimes taking one step forward and two steps back. But it's based upon God's faithfulness, not ours. I love what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. He's thanking God for something. He's thanking God for something very important. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession. Like God's taken us on a big parade always in Christ. And through us spreads the fragrance, the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. That if you're a believer, your life on display, your real life, not not pretending like it's a certain thing, but your real life where you say, "I've, I've been saved by God's grace and mercy, and I'm a failing, frail unfaithful person often but but god is good and i'm basing my my eternity on him that he he manifests the aroma he puts out an aroma of the knowledge of him that your life would be an exhibit to the value of knowing god Uh, to lead in triumph by the way was a picture back then of the triumphal entry of a military hero who had conquered another nation and they were coming back into the city of Rome. And the victorious general is marching into the city in this huge parade. But the general isn't in front. The general's not at the front of the parade. No, first is the city magistrate leading the parade. And then the trumpeteers, uh, people playing trumpets to announce the fact that there's a big parade coming right now. And then behind the trumpeters, all the spoils of war, all the gold and the silver and other things they had taken from the people they had conquered. And then white oxen destined to be sacrificed. And, And then all the captives that are being led by the king of the conquered country. You know, they're doing the walk of shame. And they know they've been conquered. And then after them, the victorious soldiers and the army 
and, and musicians playing instruments and dancers dancing in the streets. And then, last, the general himself of the conquering country whose honor uh, the entire parade is taking place. And, and then there's fragrance, there's a smell in the streets. You know when you go to like a street fair and you smell the kettle corn and all that? Well, what you would smell in, in this um, triumphal procession, this parade, is a sweet smell of burning spices. And the, the, it would just be going through the air, and it was very customary in those times for the triumphal parade to have this sweet odor of burning spices in the streets, and people were just celebrating this, this victory. We are awaiting our king. We are awaiting our king to return, and, and until that time, by his spirit, uh, through his word, he enables uh, ongoing obedience that leads to rejoicing, or that leads to peace. You know how good you feel when you've done the right thing, and, and you don't give yourself the credit. You say, I want God to have the credit, but praise God that I was able, by his spirit, to do this. Now, if you think about your life for just a moment, you know you cannot plan out your whole life. Think of all the plans you've made that never came about because it wasn't in God's plan. And we all know we're all prone to make decisions that can derail us from God's plan. But God has clearly given us an instruction manual, the word of God, and he hasn't left us alone to navigate it. The spirit of God leads us into all the truth. Jesus said in John 14, and this is foolproof assurance, by the way, 100%, if you love me, you will keep my commands. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. And then the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. We see what God is doing is he's leading his people really from all angles. From above, he's deciding what will happen. Uh, beside us, he's directing us and within us, he's giving us discernment to walk in wisdom. But here's an interesting thing. Wouldn't you think that the people who receive this would say, this is so awesome, God is so good. Wouldn't you think? Go with me over to verse 27 of Isaiah 40. Because verses 12 through 31 basically say, God is amazing, he made the world, he sits on his throne, the nations are a drop in the bucket, the nations are like grasshoppers in God's sight. And listen to what the people say. God calls them out on it. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? You know, God doesn't see us, and my right is disregarded by God. You know, he knows, but he doesn't care. He's, they're, they're leveling charges against God, so instead of praising God, they complain against God. So like us, right? So like us. They say God's not aware of our situation. He's unconcerned about our problems. God doesn't care. Israel complained, and so do I. And don't we come up with so many silly uh, 
objections to following God's leadership. I mean, probably chief amongst them are, 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 is this, God is not giving me what I need or want right now. Might be the worst one for us. And I want you to know, most of the things that you might desperately seek and think you need on a daily basis, and sometimes try to, try to get for years and years, and the, door steep, getting, and the door's closed, are not things God wants you to have right now. Not, not now. Not in the timing you think. And he wants you to learn obedience through the things you suffer. And he wants you to learn contentment. This is hard for us. He wants us to see him as our portion, as Lamentations 3 tells us. Our portion, what we need, is him. We might even say, but there's a lot of enemies. And God, you just don't understand the enemies that I'm dealing with. Go back to Isaiah. Uh, the Jews were few in number. They were a remnant. They were facing a long, difficult journey. The armies of Assyria and Babylon and Persia had made it look like Gentile false gods were stronger than the real God. And Isaiah has to remind them of God's greatness. Because God is greater than anything on earth. He shows his wisdom and power and immensity and creation. He's greater than the nations and their gods. He sits on the throne of heaven. Behold your God. And nothing is equal to him, let alone greater than him. So the next time you think that your enemies are greater than God or the world is bigger than God, remember the drop in the bucket that they really are. Remember the grasshoppers that they really are. And even if you feel small and you wonder if God even notices you, Remember, he knows the name of every star, Isaiah 40, verse 26, and he knows your name too. He knows your name. You feel insignificant. You feel ignored. You feel like maybe God isn't really involved, but he really is. God numbers the stars. He can handle you. Richard Sibbs, who was born in 1577, and died in 1635, said this, a Christian is a person that can never be conquered. Emmanuel became man to make the church and every Christian one with him. Christ's nature is out of danger of all that is hurtful. The sun shall not shine, the wind shall not blow to the church's hurt. But the church's head rules over all things and has all things in subjection. So let all the enemies consult together. This king and that power there is a council in heaven which will disturb and dash all their councils. Emmanuel in heaven laughs them to scorn. And as Martin Luther put it, shall we weep and cry when God laughs? I think that uh, not trusting God as you go through your life is like looking uh, through the wrong end of a microscope. You know when you look through the wrong end of a microscope, uh, everything looks really small and far away. Well, you look at God through your circumstances, he's gonna seem small and far away. But you look at your circumstances through God, he is going to right-size your life. He is going to give you an accurate perspective, and he is going to, as you draw near to him, he's gonna draw near to you and reveal his greatness. That's what he's gonna do. Some of you are saying, I don't think I can make it. Back in those days, Jews were complaining they didn't have strength for the journey, that God was asking the impossible from them, and the answer to that is, yes, that's right. Humanly impossible. Because God knows what you, what you fear, God knows what you feel, and again, over and over again, God is telling his people, fear not. I want you to go to the very last verse 
uh, of Isaiah 40, verse 31, where it says, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. I just want you to look at that for a moment with me. Wait here does not mean sit around and do nothing. Wait here means to hope, to look to God for all you need, to meditate on his character and his promises and, and pray and seek to glorify him in your life. Isaiah tells the people early on here, verse 10, do not fear. And he goes on through the whole chapter and says, God's greater than all. You have no reason to fear. God is greater than all. Remember what James said about our lives? He said our life is like a mist, a vapor, like steam on a cup of coffee that just kind of disappears. But Jesus never moves. His word never, never changes. Jesus is an anchor for your soul. And, and, and some of us are just saying, yeah, but I just don't know what, what God is up to. Wonderful. If you were claiming you did, we might be in trouble. Because Isaiah 55 tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. We're not his counselor. He has no counselors. And by the way, did any of you know that you actually got one more second in 2016? Did you, you got an extra second of sleep last night. Did you know that? Did you know that you had to wait an extra second for the clock to strike 2017? The smartest among us know this, and I am not the smartest among us. I just know this from some smart people. And it's something about uh, recalibrating atomic time uh, by pausing it for a second. It was a leap second at midnight. But here's the deal. You had to wait another second for 2017. But you will never have to wait one second longer for God's leading than he has already ordained. You will never have to wait. He is working all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And the good he is bringing about is your sanctification, you becoming more like Christ. He's not bringing about the good of your ultimate um, comfort and uh, relief immediately and comfort, but your ultimate holiness and conformity to the image of Christ. And we all want to know what's happening next. And the secret things belong to God. And he reveals his plan as we go and Right this moment, you have everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. It's like manna. He's going he's to provide for you what you need every day. Elizabeth Elliot uh, wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor, a story of missionary martyrdom of five young men, including her husband. And here's what she wrote. God is God. If he's God, he's worthy of my worship and service. I will find rest nowhere else but his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. So I just want to say as you chart a course, as we chart a course in this new year, by the grace of God, I think the best prayer for us is this. Lord, this is your life. Like my life is in your hands. I, I yield everything to you. It's the best way to start a new year. It's the best way to start every day. And even if you're saying, but I, I'm too weak, I can't make it. If you're still objecting to it, let me just say that the last part of Isaiah 43, verse 1, that first phrase, uh, they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Just know this, renew means exchange. Exchange. It's like taking off your old clothes and putting on new clothes. Taking off your dirty clothes, putting on fresh clothes. You exchange your weakness for his power. That's what you do, because he loves you. He chose you, and he's sanctifying you, and he's prepping you for heaven. And believe it or not, if you're a Christian, 
He is pleased with you. And some of you are saying, no, he's not pleased with me. He couldn't be pleased with me. Well, now you're calling his work into question because if you're a Christian, he's conforming to the image of Christ. You say, yeah, but, but he, doesn't, he doesn't know what I did. Oh, yes, he does. And he doesn't take away your free forgiveness. And he doesn't take away his permanent promises. He does want you to walk in ongoing obedience. If you think about it, if, if the Father, if God the Father loves God the Son and his love rests on Jesus Christ and, and he says, I'm pleased with Jesus, I'm pleased with Jesus, then you can conclude that if you're in Christ, he's pleased with you. Doesn't matter if you're going backwards, disobeying, falling into sin. He cares about that. He wants you to repent, but here's what he does. He lovingly brings you back. He doesn't scream and yell at you. He doesn't give you the stink eye. But by his spirit, he lovingly leads you to repentance because you have found favor with God that was undeserved and unmerited and by his grace, he is pleased to use you in significant ways. And that is reason enough to want to follow his leadership. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to enjoy the journey of this life with you. Enjoy the journey of just this day you've given us. We thank you that you lead us to hope so that we would follow you. We thank you for our hope in Christ that is an anchor for our souls. We thank you, Lord, for your good grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.